0: Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week the crew hits hard on the subject of public scandal. How should Christians and churches deal with it, especially the public exposure of sexual abuse, and how can we separate truth from slander?
1: Well, this week on Desperate Theologizing, uh, we had a few interesting uh, posts sent in, but I think the winner, by a a short head, as we would say in this uh, horse racing world, is an article that appeared on the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's page. When I first read it, I actually thought their site had been hacked, but it's still there. So I assume it was actually real. You're going to lose
2: some friends over this, Truman.
1: No, I've lost all those friends a long time ago, man. <laughs> <laughs> the only two friends I have are actually talking to me on the podcast at this particular <laughs> moment in time. So unless Amy's offended by this, I think I'm safe. Uh, it's entitled Soap Bubble Submission by, by Martha Pierce. And it's really the story about how uh, this lady was in, in kind of sinful conflict with her husband because when she washed the dishes, she never quite got all the soap off. And uh, her husband would constantly remind her of this. Uh, I think at my own home, if I did that with my wife, I hope uh, that you would all come and visit me in hospital while I was recovering. <laughs> uh, but anyway, her husband kept reminding her of this, and it irritated her until she realized that actually it was because she had not grasped biblical teaching on submission. And uh, I'll read the, uh, the, 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 the climactic moment of the piece, the, the happy ending talking about uh, washing the dishes. I was washing dishes and rinsing a glass I'd just washed. My husband walked through the kitchen and was behind me. He noticed that I was about to place the clean glass in the dish drain, and he said, you did not get all the soap bubbles off. (laughs) Now, to my credit, it was not dripping with soap, but he must have seen something. Well, in my heart, I thought, if you don't like how I am washing the dishes. Quickly, though, I thought, he's telling me to rinse it again, and I need to be submissive. Neither one of us was saying a word, but... My husband stopped to see what I was going to do. The water was running and I knew I needed to rinse it again. I, I didn't want to do it, but I knew the Lord wanted me to. Meanwhile, as I contemplated what to do, my arm was stuck in an uncomfortable, outstretched position. So I began in my mind to talk to my arm. It's a bit like, you remember uh, um, Sledgehammer used to talk to his gun? I love that, <laughs> Sledgehammer. Show. She's talking to her arm here. So I began <laughs> in my mind to talk to my arm. Come on, arm, you can do this. Rinse it again. It took so long for my arm to begin to move back toward the running water that the muscles began to ache. Finally, I talked... Sorry, time out for a second. Finally, I'm trying to give suitable drama. Finally, I talked my arm into moving towards the water and carefully rinsing the glass again. After I rinsed it again and put the glass in the dish drain, I began to wash the next dish. My husband said in astonishment, You did it. I replied, Yes, you told me to. And he countered with, But... You did it. Oh. That moment was a turning point in my walk with the Lord. The Lord was testing me and teaching me to be faithful, even in the very least of things. Submission was beginning to be my joy. Mm. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic.
1: Mm. Uh, I'd like to just uh, throw a little challenge to all the husbands who may be listening there. Why don't you give this a try at home? You know, Go up and make some <laughs> fatuous critical comments about some menial task that you've given your wife to do. And then... When you get out of hospital, send us an email and let us know how long you took to recover. In the meantime, I'd like to give, I think, a jewel prize this week. This week's Desperate Theologizers, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And Martha Pierce, thanks for really making our day.
0: Desperado. Why don't you come to your senses? you been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one. But I know that you got your reasons. These things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow.
1: Todd. What serious topic do you have for us today? Yeah, so
2: one of the things, obviously, that has been haunting the church for quite a while, longer than we realize, but certainly publicly, um, uh, over the last decade or so, is the revelations of child sexual abuse within the church. You know, I think for a long time, Protestants and evangelicals comforted themselves with the fact that this was largely a Roman Catholic problem. Of course, that's simply nonsense. Um, It's a Protestant problem. Uh, we're aware of the fact that the Academy Award-winning film this year was a film called Spotlight, which was about uh, the, uh, the the public exposure um, by, I think it was the Washington Post, by a lot of the sexual abuse that was going on in the Roman Catholic Church. But we Protestants know, and increasingly the public knows, that this is very much an evangelical Protestant problem as well. We've talked about some of these issues, some in past podcasts, but mm-hmm. you know I'm wondering about Uh, the optics of such a problem how how do we respond to the fact that uh, or or how do we deal with the fact that the churches um, and pastors and ministry leaders uh, should have to deal with sometimes not actual guilt but some of the stains of the public scandal upon our churches and upon our ministries how do we address that how do we deal with that in a faithful way knowing that We as pastors, for instance, elders in the church, overseers, um, have a a much higher calling than simply not being proven guilty in a court of
1: law. Yeah, Hmm. I think that's an excellent point, Todd. I mean, the first thing that one's got to draw out of this is when we're dealing with pastors and elders, we're not dealing with legal burden of proof. Right. You don't have to be found not guilty in a court of law to be totally compromised as a church leader on this. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 3 verse 7 gives that qualification. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well thought of by outsiders. Somebody of good reputation. And somebody of good reputation, that's above and beyond legal definitions of proof, Mm -hmm. such that I think if there is a reasonable suspicion that something bad has gone down and somebody Mm -hmm. may be connected to it, that's enough to disqualify you. Can be. There are always gossips out there. There are malicious people who spread vicious rumors. But some of the recent cases of allegations of child abuse in the Protestant evangelical church are not just malicious rumors. And right. when lawsuits get dismissed on technicalities, mm-hmm. that's a problem. When allegations right. are made that could be easy to refute, such as the, the acceptance of vacations or money or whatever, that could be easy to refute if they're not true and they are not refuted, yeah. then I think reputations are publicly tarnished in a way that puts you in the crosshairs of First Timothy chapter 3, verse 7.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to give, you know, credibility, as you said before, I don't want to give credibility to slanderers. We know they're out there. We, if you've been in ministry long enough, you know that sometimes there's smoke where there isn't fire. We know that that's true. Um, but we also have common sense and hopefully a, a certain measure of sanctified common sense where, uh, allegations, can, can be reasonably made, even if not convincingly made in a court of law or, or not measuring up to a particular technicality, man, if, if, if a man's reputation come is so tarnished by reasonable, um, accusations, um, he needs to really consider whether or not he, he's able to fulfill the the requirements in second Timothy and in Titus. Um, and and I know that that can be a bit murky. I know that and i know that there are slanderers but goodness when somebody's ministry and life is haunted with with lawsuits and years worth of scandals and accusations
3: don't you think it, it it creates an environment when this isn't dealt with openly when it isn't communicated well to the congregants of the church what's happening um don't you think that then causes an environment where more false allegations might be made because Absolutely. There's wondering, you know, there's mystery involved. And was my child led by one of these sex abusers that I'm hearing about? Was my child in one of these people's homes? And I mean, kids go through normal things in life, like night terrors, stuff like that. But, you know, you might have that in your home and think, maybe my child was sexually abused and this is going on and we're not getting any answers. So maybe, maybe someone has abused my child. I could just see how if, if it isn't communicated well, and if the proper steps aren't made, then I would think there would be more false allegations because of that. And that's a case to to listen to all allegations then and deal with them.
1: And that points, I think, to the, the issue of the broad culture of the church. Right. You know, child abuse is not simply, you don't simply counter it by having child abuse policies. All churches should now have those, of course, Mm -hmm. and I think they're mandated in many states by law Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there also needs to be an openness and a transparency. I mean, the the Achilles heel of the Catholic Church on this one was the clericalism. Mm -hmm. It was hierarchical, and that led to secrecy. Mm -hmm. And we all know that there are Protestant evangelical denominations and congregations that can be very hierarchical and very Mm -hmm. secretive. There are churches where the pastors never mingle with the people. Uh, My church is a relatively small church, uh, but I make a point after the service. I go to the back door, I shake the hands of everybody as they leave, and then I hang around in the coffee space. Anybody Mm -hmm. who wants to talk to me can, and that's not directly to counter child abuse, but it's to cultivate a culture of transparency within the church. Presbyterianism can tend to be hierarchical if you're not careful, and therefore it's important that pastors and leaders, elders, make themselves accessible and therefore informally accountable to the people Mm -hmm. and avoid the kind of culture that you're talking about, Amy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, one of the things that that every overseer has to, to take into account is you know, as my reputation goes, so goes, fairly or unfairly, so goes the reputation of Christ, so goes the reputation of the church, so goes the the reputation of the doctrines that I have, you know, proclaimed from the pulpit. And, you know, I, I don't wanna tarnish the name of Christ. I don't wanna tarnish the reputation of his church. Now, again, you know, there came a time, for instance, in Jesus's ministry and in the apostles' ministries, where they, were, where they lost the favor of the outsiders, so to speak. But it was because of the gospel, mm-hmm. not because they were continually hounded mm-hmm. by charges of child sexual abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's a big difference.
1: Yeah. And I hate to bang the same old drum that I always bang at this point, but people, lay people need to realize there's big money involved.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: some of the high-profile cases... Uh, of guys who survive long after they should not have survived because they're mm-hmm. no longer of good reputation. Some of those cases connect to money. Sure. It's as simple as that. And I, every time I say that, I get emails from people saying, well, give me an example of, well, Well, mm-hmm. it's hard, but just open your eyes. Yeah. Just open your eyes and look at the, the level at which some of these guys are living at. It's not, you know, we're not talking of huge millions and millions of dollars but we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in our world we're talking of significant sums of money that are attached to particular names that have become brands and uh, again I assume that I'll be totally ignored on this one I would uh, remind listeners that pretty much everything I've said about the celebrity culture and evangelicalism and pretty much everybody I've called out in the last decade I've been proved to be right even though you've all ignored me that's fine (laughs) but uh But I just want to say that the whole big money Uber conference circuit depends upon big names and the pressure, you know, on the one hand to write blog posts about child abuse Mm -hmm. and then to tweet stuff protecting people who have been pulled into those kind of scandals. That's huge. It's huge because it plays to the gallery on the one hand that you look careful and concerning. But when it comes down to what we'd say in the UK, brass tacks, you're really not doing the evangelical movement any favors at all. Right.
2: Yeah. And and this is one of the reasons why we have to um, grip our our projects and our our ministries outside the church, we've got to grip those things very loosely. Yeah. You know, there, there may be an event or a project or a conference that, that was wonderful and it was meant to shine brightly for a short period of time and then die mm-hmm. rather than becoming something that people's livelihoods now depend upon. Yeah. Because at that point, then you've got to protect it. Yeah. And, and that's, not, that, that's not a good place to be in.
1: My dad had a rather obscene term, which I won't use on air, for, for people who had a certain amount of money. And he would refer to it as a certain kind of money. And I remember asking my dad, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. And he said, using the crudity, which I won't use on air, he said, well, Mm -hmm. that's when you earn enough money from your day job that if somebody comes along and tells you they want you to do something that you feel you shouldn't do, or they want you to defend somebody you shouldn't defend, you can tell them, and here I'm going to paraphrase my father, you can tell them to go away. And I think the problem in a lot of evangelicalism now is the money's got so big from a lot of these peripheral organizations that they become laws unto themselves. And the blowback on the child abuse thing is that names become too big. They do become indispensable to the economy of evangelicalism. And that's a problem. That's a real problem.
2: Yeah, I would encourage, I would plead with ministry leaders, with well-known evangelicals, to, to sit and talk with some of the victims of this child sexual abuse, to, to some of the parents, and, and to begin to empathize with the horror. That yeah.
1: they've gone through. Uh, that points to the optics of a lot of this as well. And mm-hmm. that I'm tired of reading statements coming out from churches and organisations where there's been child abuse. Where you get two or three lines of kind of throat clearing at the start. Yeah. We're very sad that X, Y, and Z's lives were totally ruined by sexual abuse that we should have taken steps to deal with. And then you get 36 pages of how the devil is using this to destroy some good ministry or some good man's right. ministry. The right. the optics on that. Are, absolutely abominable. Totally totally minimizes the
3: abuse. Yeah, Yeah, and for a gospel that is all about repentance, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, why? It just seems like it's so hard, it just shows you how strong sin is, to ask for forgiveness. You know, for a leader to say, I regret having done this. Right. Um, It's interesting that the message that we hear is so different from right. the actions that we're seeing,
2: yeah, yeah, you know, come out and say, "Look, I was blind. Yeah, I didn't take this seriously. I mean, this I was is what, foolish this is for that. Please what's being me. behind the
3: pulpit, right? right. I mean, right. Christianity is a life of repentance. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And this has done incalculable damage to ordinary Christians. Mm-hmm. Not only those who've been abused, but those who, quite frankly, get sick of the cover-ups and right. sick of the self-serving rhetoric at the top." You know, I can understand why people drift away from the reformed faith Mm -hmm. on this score. And that's why I think the leaders need to take more responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's not – we're not trying to score cheap points here. We're trying to make the point that our faith is being damaged by the need to preserve certain organizations and And certain ministries. That's a problem.
2: Exactly. That's one of the things that's grieved me is that I came running to the reformed faith. Because of, not not just because I became convinced it was it was biblical, but because it's biblical, it, it's it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, and I and I still am so thankful to be a part of the Reformed faith, to be a member and a and a minister in the Presbyterian Church, and I grieve the fact now that that the Reformed faith is being tarred and feathered uh, for this, yeah. and, and there are people departing and and. And saying awful things about the Reformed faith, about the doctrines of grace mm-hmm. because of this issue. And what because I hate about that, too, is how
3: much it tarnishes um, the optics of how women are are viewed and treated in the church. Mm-hmm. And I, that's one thing when we're talking about church cultures and even in the wider evangelical um, parachurch movements. Just um, is it a culture where women are heard on these things mm-hmm. or are they just downplayed? Right. Um, you know, are women just seeing boys clubs Yeah, where, where they're not being heard yeah. and, and, and it's not even approachable for them. To, to
1: I'll give a personal a anecdote on that. Yeah, I remember yeah. a couple of years ago I was asked to speak at a conference. This was two, maybe two years ago, uh, connected to a certain group, and uh, I agreed. And then I actually spoke to Amy. Just in passing I mentioned it to Amy and said, what do you think? And she said to me, as a woman, I would be not comfortable with you being there. Mm-hmm. And I pulled out as a result of that yeah. piece of advice, because I thought, you know, there are more, there's more to this than, than just me speaking. Right. There are the optics relative to the constituency out there. Yeah. That has yeah. to be taken, those optics have to be taken into account.
2: Right. And if, if I'm going if, to, if my involvement in, in a parachurch ministry or, or some kind of an event, which, you know, sometimes it's a really good thing for a pastor to have some of those, but, but if that involvement is going to scandalize somebody within my church then the choice needs to be very clear at that point. It yeah. should be
3: obvious yeah. what I should do. Yeah, That's what a true leader does, right? Right. right. They're serving people. Right. And I think that's uh, the optics <laughs> overall is we want to see our preachers of the gospel um, shepherding and pastoring yeah. and doing what they say behind the pulpit mm-hmm. and what they expect us to do as regular right. congregants. So I guess that wraps it up for us today, and thank you for listening. Please check out our website at mortificationofspin.org, and we'll talk with you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. This week at mortificationofspin.org, we have a message entitled, Low Deeds in High Places by James Boyce. What should we do when leaders, specifically politicians, are corrupt? Dr. Boyce brings rich biblical insight to this issue. Head over and listen to that today. And Come back next week when Kelly Capick joins us for a discussion on Christian college. And is that the mad woman I hear?
1: So Kelly, perhaps you'd like to just tell us a little bit about your teaching at Covenant, what you find particularly satisfying, what what particular challenges you're facing at this specific moment in time.
2: What are some of the most common issues that you deal with at Covenant as far as um, things that students are wrestling with in regards to their faith and their relationship with Christ?
3: With this adolescent category, do you think we've lowered our expectations for what they're capable of doing?
2: What I love about what we do is there's not any question that's not going to be asked there. It's just the professors are standing there, not
0: necessarily with answers, but still believing.
3: Thank you so much, Carl, for putting me on the spot.
0: That's next week. In the meantime, check out the Mortification of Spin blog. And be sure to listen to Low Deeds in High Places by James Boyce.
1: Todd, if, if you, you talk take- to your wife like that, we will come and visit you in the hospital after they've removed <laughs> the frying pan from your skull. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and my thing is.
2: There, you've got your outtake.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs>